your Bibles tonight and go to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. We're going to be looking tonight at verses 7 through 11. And our subject or the title for the study tonight is Brethren and Brotherly Love. Brethren and Brotherly Love. Uh, really, I, I like that title. Uh, not because it's clever, not because it's even unique. But I like what it means. Um, there is nothing greater than to be able to gather with brothers and sisters in Christ and be able to open the word together, to be able to sing praises together, to be able to pray one with another. And so I hope that especially tonight, I hope this will be, um, I hope every service is a, a particular encouragement to you. But I, I really um, am praying that this one is um, because I think there's some great reminders tonight about uh, what it is to be brethren. Um, it's, not a, it's not a popular word we use in our today's vocabulary, but it, it, it gives us a picture, really a, a picture of unity. It gives us a picture that's really a beautiful expression, uh, brethren. And so you'll see that the very first verse we're going to read tonight, that's what John uses. We see verse 7 of 1 John 2. He says, Brethren, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment which ye had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which ye have heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past, and the true light now shineth. He that saith he is in the light and hateth his brother is in darkness even until now. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. But he that hateth his brother is in darkness, and walketh in darkness, and knoweth not whether he goeth, because that darkness hath blinded his eyes. Those verses 7 and 8 are really the positive. The brethren walking together, uh, no longer in the darkness, true light now shining. The negative side is verses 9 and 10, when he has to come back to a difficult subject. Those who say they're in the light, but actually are not in the light and really declares that there are those that are brethren and there are those who are not brethren. So remember, when we're thinking about chapter 2 here, we're thinking about uh, the responsibilities, the duties, and the privileges of converted people, people who are, in fact, in Christ, uh, people whose testimony is, I am not without Christ. I am in Christ Jesus today. And so, remember, we looked at over the last couple of weeks about how we are to wage war against sin. We're to wage war against our own personal sin. But while there should be a concern about that, um, we should be concerned, as we're going to see a little bit tonight and over the coming weeks, although there should be this concern about avoiding sin, uh, remember John put any fears that they might have had regarding this that young believers especially would be crushed by their continual failure, their continual falling into sin. Remember what he said in verse 1, and if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. It's a comforting thought. It's comforting especially those that are in Christ knowing that even when we fail, even when we fall, we have a Savior. We saw in verse number 2 how that Christ our Savior is presented as the atoning sacrifice. 
Now you'll notice the language was that he was not only for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And we established that that doesn't mean that Christ died for every single person, but it means that he died for all of those that belong to him. That means sinners from every part of the world, sinners from every land, sinners from every nation, sinners of every tongue, every tribe. Christ died particularly for those the Father gave. And so when we use terminology like brethren, we're dealing with a term that is a term of this salvation, this advocacy we have with Christ, this being in Christ. So brethren is not a light term. Um, it's a term that really is, is, is a, a, a glue that binds us together. Um, to call one another brethren is a term that you can only use among other believers. Um, the unbelieving world cannot really call themselves to each other brethren. Uh, we, in a sense, can't call an unbeliever brethren. But those who are in Christ, those who are in the church, can certainly do that. And so the churches, and remember, the churches in the times in which John wrote, uh, they were filled, and that's good, uh, they were filled with converted Jews. And again, that's great, that's good. But the Jews were also, as anybody would be, uh, they were very much programmed to their former way of thinking, how they viewed even their faith. And so these converted Jews would come together, and when, remember, the Jews actually had in their mind that God only blessed Jewish people. I mean, that was, that was programmed into them from a very young age, that Jews were the only people on earth that were blessed by God. So can you see what John is doing here? And even what Paul did, they were throwing open the doors to the Gentiles to say, you can be blessed by God as well. You can be part of this family of God. So for the converted Jew, remember, just because the conversion takes place doesn't mean the programming of the old mind just simply goes away. Now, that's true even in our world today. Uh, what, one of the beauties of the church, and I think one of the beauties of our church, all right, I think I'd just be very personal with you tonight, is the various backgrounds that this church comes from. And yet, we are finding a unity. We are finding a brethren relationship because we are agreed upon the proper doctrines and the proper what God's word says. Don't take that for granted. Don't take it for granted. You can even get a group this size to agree to a doctrine. Okay, we're, we're programmed in our world to think, well, look at all the big churches in the world. It is not normal for even a group of people this size to gather together and be in agreement. Brethren is a word of unity. It's a word of agreement. It's a word that says we agree on the doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ. We agree wholeheartedly, not in part, but in whole. We agree that he is the atoning sacrifice. We agree that he is our advocate. But remember, the times in which John wrote to the Jews, opening the door of salvation to these aliens, these strangers, was very foreign to them. So when John uses the term brethren and he starts talking about brotherly love, these converted Jews are going to struggle with how do we love People who aren't like us. You want us, converted Jews, to call Gentiles brethren? 
You want us to give brotherly love to them? Now, remember, when he throws open the door of salvation to the Gentiles, he's saying that Christ didn't just die for the Jews, but he did die for those Gentiles. There were some that he died for, of course. So really, as we've been moving through this study, we saw in verse number three, John says, hereby we do know. And let's look at the way it's phrased. Now, your translation may be different. I love the way the King James writes this. Okay, does not saying it's the only way. I'm just telling you that I love the way it says it. Hereby, we do know that we know him. We do know that we know him. This is, this is an assurance. So he's getting ready to make this assured statement of true spiritual life. And he says, here's how you know, if we keep his commandments. So what John is doing is he is moving and showing us the marks of grace, or what we might say the marks of life. True spiritual life is really what starts to happen now from chapter 2, really all the way through the end of this epistle. Notice he says there is a certainty about this. We do know that we know him. Now, this is not some hypothetical knowledge. This is a true knowledge that we may know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Again, sinless perfection? No, we know that can't be the case because he's told us we have an advocate with the Father when we sin. But what he is saying is, is that this is your manner of life. Now, again, you may say, I thought we were looking at verses 7 through 11. We are, but these are laying a very important context again what we've been talking about. So how are we certain that we know Christ? Well, what he's saying here is you, are, you can be certain you know Christ if you truly want to follow him. It, it, I know it sounds like it should be some theological treatise. I should give you some big long book on here's how you know that you love him. But do you have a desire to obey him? Again, not everybody in the world has a desire to follow Christ. Not everybody in churches have a desire to follow Christ. Not everybody has a desire to follow him, but that's what he's saying here. If you, if you have a knowledge of him and you want to obey him, you see a true convert, a person who is truly of Christ, is very teachable. They're not only very teachable, but they truly do desire, I want to do the right thing. Now, I'm going somewhere with this, right? Because there is this mark of grace. One of the marks of grace is the fact that you want to be obedient to Christ. Okay, that's a mark of grace. The very fact that you want to be obedient to Christ is a mark of grace. We just assume that doesn't everybody want to obey Christ in every church? No, they don't. Right? So obedience to Christ is a sign or a mark of grace. We want to obey not just his moral commands, but we want to obey any instruction he gives. Now, the term, there's a term that is used in a lot of churches, and sometimes it's, and I'm not saying it's bad, I actually think it's a good, it, have you ever heard the term a nominal believer? Have you heard that expression before? So honestly, what that, it kind of tells in your mind, a nominal believer kind of says, oh, a believer, but it's just on a very small scale. Really know what a nominal believer is, by definition, is one who is not truly converted. So nominal belief is not a small belief, it's no belief. There's no true conversion. Yet we use the term nominal believer because they don't feel that way. 
A nominal believer has no desire to obey Christ. A nominal believer has no desire to follow in his instructions. A nominal believer says we, have, we want to have Christianity, but we don't want to follow Christ. That's nominal. Okay, so now when you hear that term nominal believer, now you'll know, oh, that's not just a small believer. That's a person who's never truly been converted. So the word brethren is not for the nominal believer. The word brethren is for those who have been truly converted, those who are truly in Christ. Now, a nominal believer may, may actually believe some of the central doctrines we believe. They, would, they possibly would be in agreement. They would say, oh, I agree with that thought process. I agree with that doctrine to an extent, but they don't have a desire to obey Scripture. Now, based upon what John has said, is that a reason to question whether or not they may truly be converted if they don't have a desire to obey Scripture? By John's definition, yes. So if you tell me we can agree on a doctrine, but we don't have a desire to obey Scripture, it would be accurate or fair to say that's nominal belief. Because a doctrine doesn't necessarily mean that I have a desire to follow Christ. It's that teachable spirit. Now, here, this happens in churches, and, and, and this is a difficult conversation we have to have sometimes. If we as a body of believers, and let's, let's say every person who is part of our church, and let's just, let's just deal with the fact if we see another person in the church who's doing something that's inconsistent, right? I've, I, this question gets asked to me monthly. Um, what do I do if I see someone doing something that I don't think is right? How do I handle that? What, what, what am I supposed to do? Well, if we are truly brethren the way we should be, if we're truly in agreement of these things, and if I've truly been converted, I'm not going to be offended by someone in the brethren or someone in the church being concerned about my well-being. I'm going to take it for what it's worth. I'm going to say, listen, this is someone that cares about me. Now, I could go about it the wrong way. I could certainly approach it the wrong way. I could condemn them. I could stand them up in a corner or stand them up in the middle of a building and say, you did this, or I could go to them in love. But a person who's truly been converted will accept that. A nominal believer will not. They'll say, who are you to tell me what to do? That's how it typically responds. Now, if we're truly brethren, that's not the way we should respond to one another. It should be in a heart of love, and it should be a heart of respect. So... If we see these things, right, and again, we're not going out looking for this, because remember, you've got you've to remember the principles of uh, look at the beam in your own eye first before you point out the speck in a brother's eyes. If we actually live that principle, we're going to have a hard time seeing sin in other people because we're too busy with the beam in our own eye. But again, we could see these things, and yet the scriptures here tell us that we can know if we're truly converted. Now, we already covered this, and we went out in verses 4, 5, and 6, where he, he talks about whoever keeps his word in him is verily the love of God perfected. Hereby know that we are in him. So really, what we see here is there's an assurance here. We have an advocate, we have an atonement, and we have assurance. Okay? So are you really converted? If you're really converted, then we certainly are in a place where we are brethren. Now, that's the basis, that's the foundation. So what, everything he says from this point on now, he's talking about these are the conversations that are happening and the life and the marks of grace in the lives of believers. Brethren, 
Now, to be fair, there are times that we are reluctant. We're reluctant to doubt the standing of someone spiritually. Now, again, I'm not saying we go looking for it. But do you realize what John is saying in the verses we've read, especially like what he said in verse 4? He said that he that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. He's, he's, he is calling someone out who says, I am brethren, but I don't walk in the truth. John says, that's a lie. Now, I'm not saying this is us, but membership roles are filled with people who are nominal believers. They're filled with them. Now, how does that happen? Because we're reluctant to question someone standing. And it's part of it is because we're afraid of being arrogant. All he's saying is, is if you say these things are true, but then your life doesn't back them up, there's reason to question it. There's reason to question, is this real? Now, the apostles of the New Testament churches were not afraid to say that people were unconverted. They insisted that one of the marks of grace, one of the signs of grace, was a continuing willingness to obey the commands of Scripture. Continual. Now, I will say this, a lot of people, and and we maybe have all been guilty at some point in our life, we start off very, very determined to obey, only to kind of start to let it slide just a little bit. He's not talking about moments where we as believers have times when we slip back into old habits. He's talking about people that make a confession, make a clear statement that they are in Christ, and then never show a desire to continually obey and walk in Christ. So he's talking about a manner of life, not a single moment in time, right? You and I, I mean, let's just be honest. You might see me somewhere sometime, and you may find, see me in a bad situation. You may not know all the circumstances, but you may see something that doesn't look good. Now, you can make an assumption, and you can say that's his pattern of life, or you can say maybe this is something that I'm not aware of. But he's talking about people who say these things, but then don't have a continual desire to walk in them. So the point is, is that there's this continual emphasis on how you walk. Now, I know that's lengthy to get to what I want to say now, right? Chapter 2, verses 7 through 11, is not disjointed or disconnected from everything that's been said in verses 1 through 6. As a matter of fact, verse 7 and 8 and 9 and 10 and 11 make no sense as to why he's even saying this if we took them apart from verses 1 through 6. So what is verses 7 through 11? Well, this is the third or another sign of grace, a mark of grace. And again, John declares it with an exhortation. And he begins it by saying, brethren. But notice how he frames this. I write no new commandment unto you. So he says, what I'm getting ready to say to you is not new, but an old commandment which he had from the beginning. So it's as if John is saying, what I'm about to say to you is a commandment which is as old as truth itself, yet at the same time, it is something new. But the commandment itself is not new. It's an old truth, but the way it's being said to you now is something new. 
So here's the principle based upon what we've just learned and been learning. Someone who has truly entered in, has been converted, truly born again, enters into something that has no comparison in society. In other words, when you are come to Christ, when you're converted, you enter into something that is found nowhere else. Now, I'm not just talking about Springfield Reformed Baptist Church. I'm talking about into Christ. There is no relationship, there's no gathering that you enter into that's like this. Nothing compares to it. Society doesn't even have anything that they can say. But what he's saying is that there is a truly remarkable and amazing bond with people who are similar to you. One of the things that is so precious to me as a pastor and the pastor of this church specifically, and it's, it's the bond that's there in Christ. This bond supersedes personality bonds. Okay, this is a bond that is not something that can be, you can't replicate this. You may not bond with everybody, every, every Christian in personality, in likes, in dislikes, but do you realize that if you are in Christ, you have a bond that is unbreakable? And that unbreakable bond is a beautiful bond and it's the most important bond you're ever going to have? You see, if, if we base our fellowship and we base our relationships on, do we have a bond with one another? Are we all the same? Do we all have like personalities? Do we all get along perfectly in the world? And we say that's the most important thing. We've missed the point. Because again, I can even tell you in a group this side, there's going to be some differences. And those differences are okay. But the bond in Christ can't be broken. So when we call each other brethren, we are speaking of the bond that we have in Christ. And that is a remarkable bond because it's unlike anything else in the world. No other group of people can claim what we're claiming and what John is claiming. A true convert has this bond with other Christians. Now, this has always been the case, and that's what John is saying. This is nothing new. In Old Testament times, those who were truly converted had a spiritual bond, had an understanding with one another. What's a little bit different is now introduced into that equation is love. Now remember, go back to what I said at the very beginning. Jewish converts who still were programmed in an old way of thinking, would have never thought about loving and bringing in and loving a different group of people. Because they only thought the Jews were blessed. We have a hard time putting ourselves in the narrative because we don't live so much like that, but maybe we do. Now, what's new here is that he begins speaking about this love. Um, let's go to a couple places. Look at 1 John chapter 3, because this theme of brotherly love and brethren now becomes a central theme throughout the rest of this book. John 3, verse 10. 
In this, the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil, whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother, and wherefore, wherefore slew he him, or why did he slay him? Because his own works were evil and his brother's righteous. Marvel not, my brethren, there's that word again, if the world hate you, we know that we've passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. So one thing that that person who does not love the brethren doesn't have, they don't have that bond in Christ. That's what's missing. But he says that's how you know you've passed from death unto life is because you have love for the brethren. If you don't have love for the brethren, you don't have that bond of Christ and you still abide in death. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer, and ye know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And hereby we know, there's that assurance again, that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. John is not sugarcoating it. He's pretty much telling you, if you don't have love for the brethren, you don't have this bond in Christ, and you don't have this bond in Christ because you're still in the dark. No matter what you say, if you don't love the brethren, you're still in the dark. Uh, turn over one more chapter to 1 first, first John chapter 4. Now these are, all, these are all things we'll get to down the road, but these are laying again the foundation for this brethren and brotherly love. Verse 7 of 1 John 4. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. So he that doesn't love his brother doesn't love God. It's about as direct as you can put it. You could gather a whole group of nominal believers and say we all love God, but if they hate their brother, he says you're not, you don't love God. Down in verse 20 and 21 of that same chapter, if a man say, I love God and hateth his brother, he's a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. And then just one more, 1 John 5, verse 2. By this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not grievous. So now we have a perfect sense. Yeah, and I think perfect's the right word. We have a perfect sense of what it is to love our brothers. There is a sense that now this, this is new to them. And again, you've got to go back to the original structure here. The Jews, even though there were saints, 
and the sinners, the Gentiles, the Jews, were mixed together in the same Jewish system, it was extremely difficult to express these ties. In other words, those who were spiritual, those who had these spiritual um, external things, they couldn't really experience the oneness that we experience now. God in these New Testament churches, and we're one of those, he's talking about this was an old commandment, but it's something new because now we have a way of cooperating in love that even the Old Testament saints didn't know. Even in the old Jewish system, they didn't know. I really don't think we understand just how, I don't know if this is the right phrase, how, how much better we have it when it comes to the brothers and sisters in Christ and our bond and the expression of those bonds. He's not talking about just a superficial, yeah, they're, that's, my, that's my church family. They're, yeah, that's my, that's my church family. That, that's, that's just where they are. They're my church family. He's talking about something that goes well beyond just this acknowledgement that I've got a church family that I see on Sunday or Wednesday or whatever it is. He's talking about a deep bond. He's talking about a bond that is centered around the bond that's in Christ Jesus. A bond that is much deeper than any human love or any human ex emotion can express. Because it's a bond that is of God. Can you imagine a bond of people like this? And this is one of the greatest tests of whether or not you're truly converted. You realize he's not saying, here's the test of your conversion. Did you pray right? Did you repent right? Did you get baptized right? Did you give offering right? He said, here's the true test. If you love your brother, you're converted. If you don't, you're unconverted. Why? Because the personalities mesh? No, because there's a bondness in Christ that makes it impossible for another brother or sister in Christ to hate another brother or sister in Christ. Impossible. If you're truly converted. That's the clearest test. Now, let me just ask you the question for you to kind of let it roll around and maybe at the end we'll hear, maybe you can comment on this. How often do we fail to actually recognize and rejoice in that deep bond, and let's make it personal, that we have with one another at this church? I mean, do we actually recognize it? Because when you recognize it, you're going to rejoice in this. You're going to rejoice that there is a bond in Christ in this group of people that God has sovereignly placed me here, because you're not here by accident. You're not here by random chance. And you can tell me your story of how you ended up here. It isn't random. It never is random. And yet, how often do we fail to recognize it? And maybe even further, how often do we fail to rejoice in it? Now that's the positive side. We may not get as far as I want to tonight, but that's okay. Verses 9 through 11 then deal with the negative side of it, right? 
Once again, what the Apostle John has in mind here is the possible presence in memberships of believing congregations who do not have these same ties. Now again, he's not telling them that hunt them down and find them. He's just telling them that you are, this is not a hypothetical, theoretical thing. He said, if a person says this, this was going on in those churches. This was not something he just thought. He's trying to look into the future like some visionary and say, what might the church face? Just like Jesus himself said, within any group of people, there are wheat and there are tares. There are sheep and there are goats. Saying the same thing about that. There are people inside of settled congregations of believers, brethren, brethren who are marked by brotherly love, but yet at the same time within those congregations, there are people who are not brethren and who are not part of it. Now, sometimes, how do, how do you identify that? Well, we've identified tonight that some of that is, what's the number one, how's the number one reason, or number one way you can determine someone who doesn't really, is not really converted, of course, is love, but it's also, there's no desire to walk in obedience. Right? So if you have somebody who says, I'm part of the congregation, I'm part of the brethren, I'm part of, I, I, I have love for the brothers, but I have no desire to walk in obedience to Christ, there's a problem with that testimony. Typically what will happen in those situations is you will find people that are very quarrelsome. They're very cold. Sometimes hostile. Do you realize quarrelsome and cold and hostile should not be found in the congregation of believers? Like we should, no, no congregation of believers should be marked by its ability to quarrel with one another. And it should never be cold. And I don't mean temperature-wise. It shouldn't be cold between each other. And it, it shouldn't be a situation where uh, we're hostile towards each other. But you will find people who seem to enjoy conflict, who seem to enjoy contention, who seem to enjoy finding fault with everything and anything. And even as Proverbs talks a lot about gossip. Always complaining about what's wrong instead of what is right about this. What's right about this little church on Petrie Road? A lot. Is it perfect? No. But there's a lot right. There's, there's, a, there's a remarkable, if you'll let me just speak freely for a minute. There's a remarkable bond here and a remarkable thing that's happened in the number of years since we came here, since I came here. It's remarkable what's happened. And I don't say this to be, I'm not trying to be cruel. I'm just telling you, when we walked in here eight or nine years ago, this was a very cold place. And it was hostile. It was quarrelsome. It was difficult. And God has done an amazing work of grace. He really has. In spite of us, in spite of our imperfections, in spite of some things that are, are not right. We're not perfect. 
If you sit here every Sunday, you can find something that's not right if we're looking. But you know what brothers and sisters do? We encourage each other. And I'm telling you, you folks encourage me. You've encouraged our family. And again, it's a work of grace. It's not because everybody's personalities are perfect. It's a mark of grace in a, in a congregation of people where you do see love for one another. Because it's that bond in Christ. When you have a bond in Christ, you don't see so much of the coldness and the quarreling. No, you see a zealousness to not only love one another, but to actually, like the Bible says, to rejoice with each other. And it is going to happen to weep with one another. These are not just terms that are just like, hey, God's going to give us a list of good ideas to try next Sunday. This isn't something you go to a Christian bookstore and you pull it off the bookshelf and you say, how do I make my church not so cold? This doesn't happen by humanity. This happens by a bond that's found in Christ Jesus. This is what it produces. It produces actual marks. Not things that are manufactured and made up. And again, the beauty of it is, he doesn't say... Oh, if your church is this big, you'll have it. No, he says this is the mark between brethren, no matter how few they are, or no matter how many there are. And I rejoice all the time that God's not measuring, quote-unquote, gospel success by the numbers of people who are seated here. There are, there are men more faithful than me who've been doing this a long, long time who've had congregations that look almost exactly the same as they started 50 years ago, but they have been on course. That group has been praying together, crying together, rejoicing together, repenting together, rebuilding together, and maybe they don't see a lot. But they have that mark of brotherly love. John is... It is, it's a blessing that God has given us such clear direction as to what this is supposed to look like. Sometimes in a place where it's cold, you will find a group of people who gather on Sundays, but they don't really have a focus on anything to do with the church or the work of God. Not here, but I've been around it before where people who are actually spite or they, they, they are actually almost mad when anything spiritual is happening. Spiritual good things start to happen and it's always, well, do we really need that? Do we really need to be a part of that? There's no spiritual light in a person who simply says, I really disdain when all the spiritual talk happens. You know, we, we didn't come to church to, I've heard it, this is the new one. We didn't come to church to get preached at. What exactly are you attending? I think you're taking it wrong, preached at. But preaching of the word is actually a blessing. And to, to, to be able to hear the word of God preached. It's, it's a blessing because it's God's word. So we acknowledge that even tonight, we have weaknesses. 
right? Every converted Christian has weaknesses. Sometimes things do rise up between us. Don't leave here tonight saying, you know what? Pastor Cochran said there should never be quarrels, there should never be coldness, and there should never be hostility. There will be. We have an advocate with the Father. Your family, your earthly family, has moments like that too, right? Some of the coldest places on earth is your own home. Sometimes it gets that way. Does quarrels and contention sometimes happen? (laughs) Sometimes it gets that way. But it's not the pattern. The love for the brethren shows that these times don't stay. And literally, and we're going to talk more about this next week, John is talking about something that is almost deliberate. Those who say one thing, but then they walk another way, those are the ones that hate their brothers. But the fact that we as Christians can sometimes temporarily slide into a situation like this doesn't mean that we're not converted. Professing Christians and believers, yes, if it's persistent, if we're never seeing the love of one another, we have a reason to wonder if we're even in fellowship at all. But if we're truly demonstrating this, and we're truly demonstrating a love that we have for Christ and a love we have for one another, according to what he's saying, then we know that we have passed from death unto life. I just want to challenge you tonight just to think, you know, this just... Think upon where God has you. And I'm challenged. I'm challenged by the reality. I needed to be reminded of the specialness of this. Because it is. This, this is. This is our life. Right? This is... This is the, the beauty of this, and it, this is not just a, a bunch of people who show up Sundays and Wednesdays or whatever it is. These are brethren. These are, these are people we are called to love one another, and it's the evidence and the proof of we truly are converted whether we love each other or not. And so I hope it'll, I hope it'll challenge us. I hope it'll help us. Um, there's, some, there's some deep truths here, but I think there's also a very, a very strong level of practicality on this that I hope will encourage you tonight. Um, I know it's encouraging me. Um, so next week, um, we'll deal a little bit more in depth with um, walking in the darkness again, but then also get into the beauty of, and he breaks it down in verses 12 and 13 about the children and the fathers and the young men. And that really is an amazing part of Scripture, especially when you take in the subject we just talked about tonight of brethren and brotherly love. So we'll look forward to that next week. Let's pray, and then we can take and take any questions or discuss anything um, you want to talk about. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this time, and Lord, thank you for your word. And Lord, what an encouragement to know that there is a bond that cannot be broken. There is a oneness that every truly converted individual has in Christ. And Father, I just pray that we will all be reminded of the beauty of the term brethren. Lord, I certainly pray that we would be challenged to examine our own hearts to see if we do have love for the brethren. Do we have love for one another? And Lord, 
very personally, I just, I thank you for this congregation. I thank you for this church. And Lord, we have seen and been through so many things. But Lord, you have remained and continue to be faithful. Lord, you continue to provide for everything that we need. You continue to uh, strengthen us. The Holy Spirit of God continues to bring us to a place of repentance. And Lord, thank you for placing us here. Lord, I pray that you would guard us and keep us from anything that would raise us, our own opinion of ourselves. But may we just view this for the beauty that it is, the beauty of a church and the beauty of those that have a bond in Christ. We thank you and we, we praise your name for these things. For it's in Christ's name I pray and ask them. Amen. All right.